Hi there, this is Holly Wharton from the Socially Holistic Podcast, and you're listening to Biz Women Rock. Enjoy this episode. Number 74. going on ladies welcome to the biz women rock podcast this is a great show where we interview phenomenal business women from all over the world who are here to share about their business journeys so that you can learn from all the lessons that they've learned and use those lessons in your business just a little shout out there for holly wharton who did my little intro for me today really appreciate it girl you guys should definitely go check out her podcast the socially holistic podcast thanks holly girl you rock It's time for our Biz Women Wednesday series, and this is a series that we have every single week right before the interview that really gives me a chance to highlight an amazing woman who's part of our Biz Women Rock community. And today's shout out goes to Bonnie Dye. Bonnie's company is called eTraining Live. She not only builds out incredible WordPress websites, but she also actually kind of hand walks you through and does one-on-one coaching to help you understand your actual WordPress website. On top of the fact that she's amazing at this, Bonnie is getting highlighted because she's such an active and supportive member of the entire BWR community. She's incredibly involved with asking questions and supporting other women's questions in the BWR Connect, our private Facebook group. But she's also just about to complete the BWR 30-Day Biz Challenge, and she totally rocked it. So all around, Bonnie, I just want to give you a huge shout out. You're doing great things. Thank you so much for everything that you do, not only for the Biz Women Rock community, but for your clients as well. I'm so excited about today's guest. Her name is Janice Martirano. And she's the founder of a company called the Institute for Mindful Leadership, which she started in 2011. I just want you to take five seconds and imagine what your business and what your entire life really would look like if you showed up completely present and in the moment for every single experience that you were having, decision that you were making. That's what Janice is all about. And that's what we're talking about today. So let's roll. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. It's my pleasure, Katie. Oh, I'm so excited to have you on the show. You have so much experience that I'm very, very excited to bring to everyone listening today. And I really want to start off with the huge amount of experience that you have had in corporate, really under the banner of General Mills. Can you tell us a little bit kind of about your professional background and specifically what kind of things and and leadership capabilities and jobs that you were doing at General Mills? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I spent 16 years as a vice president of public responsibility and deputy general counsel at General Mills. So in that role, I was a senior leader of the law department, and I also was a counselor on many of the public responsibility questions that came up for General Mills, whether it was around marketing or childhood obesity or sustainability. Um, There was a a small core group, and I was a member of that group, that was the founding board, the conscience of the company, that kind of a role. And so we were the folks who helped to keep a steady rudder on the things that the company was looking at doing. 
how in the world did you get that role in the first place? Because that's a very specialized role within the company. Were you brought on originally to fulfill that role or did you sort of were raised inside the company for a while? I came in as a senior member at General Mills. So I came in at that higher level, but the role evolved over time as a response to some of the environmental factors that the company was noticing and the environmental factors. There was a greater interest within the company and outside the company to do things in a more sustainable way, to try and be a part of a solution of childhood obesity. So partnering with the government, a variety of programs and nutrition and research. So it was a an evolutionary role from that perspective. And it really grew as many things in, in businesses do as an, an integration of what's happening in the environment and what are the needs of the businesses. So what was probably one of your toughest moments that you had during your tenure at General Mills? Certainly one of the most difficult moments for me was any time we needed to make a call about doing a recall. Sometimes the evidence was really clear. It either had to happen or it didn't have to happen. But there were very few, but there were a couple of times when it was a very, very tough call. There really wasn't any hard evidence, and yet there were factors like the potential for children to be sick, for example, that would override everything. And yet it costs millions and millions of dollars. So it's not an easy call to make. So finding the ways to get everybody on board with those tough calls were, were always uh, some of the more difficult issues. Now, at some point along the way, you really started getting very, very interested in mindful leadership. And this is really where your company is now. But I want to start by asking you, what was it that originally got you interested in this idea of mindful leadership? So what I began to notice really came about in another difficult moment for me, which was I was leading the government clearance of the acquisition of Pillsbury by General Mills. And that was a very complex acquisition, and the FTC was very difficult to work with during this. So what should have taken three or four months ended up taking nearly 18 months. And when organizations announce an acquisition every day is critical. So this was an excruciating time period. And about six months into it, I had someone tell me that, you know, if you can't get clearance through the FTC of this deal, 10,000 people are likely to lose their job. So every day I was carrying that, right? And then in those same 18 months, another crisis occurred in my personal life, which was I lost my mother and six months later my father. So this 18-month period of time was tragic and exhausting. And yet I had to do what many of your listeners are, I'm sure, very familiar with it, which is you plow through because there are 10,000 jobs at stake, because your family needs you, because of all these other things. But all of that does take a toll. And when the deal was finally over and I was able to get the deal through with a wonderful team I was working with, and then I was able to have a little bit more space to grieve my parents, who I was very close to. 
But still, I started doing this sort of autopilot juggling again, the 21st century juggler, which is what I think most women are, women business leaders in particular. You know, we juggle everything, parents, children, work, community service, whatever, aging parents, whatever's on our plate. And we juggle and we juggle faster and faster. But I was profoundly aware that something had been lost, that a piece of me was different, that something had changed. I just became more and more aware that I was on autopilot, that I was simply going through the day, just pushing through the day, not really knowing anything much about what was happening, even though I was checking all the boxes. And I stumbled upon a training of the mind called mindfulness and a retreat. And I went on that retreat. And that was the beginning of what became a practice for me just personally. I was a closet meditator, Katie. I wasn't telling <laughs> anybody that I was meditating. I like that statement. I don't think I've ever heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> Back when I started this, uh, mindfulness, meditation, all those things, nobody wanted to know about that. That was new agey weird stuff. You know, that was not training of the mind. I think we're making great strides in explaining to people that in fact it's not different from training your body it's but it's training capabilities of our mind so for a few years i was a closet meditator i was beginning to to notice that my passion for developing leadership excellence both for myself and for my colleagues in the departments and teams that i led that there was a great intersection between what i understood about developing leadership and what i was beginning to see from my meditation practice strengthened those important capabilities for leadership. And there was one meeting that it was an officer's meeting on innovation. And it was at that meeting that I began to hear so much from my colleagues who I cared a great deal about, about feeling overwhelmed about themselves, not having the time for creativity and innovation, just about not having any space to be their best selves, to bring their best leadership that I decided that I could no longer keep this to myself because I was beginning to see what an extraordinary difference it was making in my own leadership. And I began to tell people about my experience with it. And in a couple of months, I had individually recruited colleagues to be the first group to be trained in mindful leadership, which was this intersection. And that began the journey at General Mills. That's so interesting to me. We've had so many guests on this show talk about the idea of balance and 100% of them have said, there's no such thing. Like you have these moments in life where you're sort of all in over here and the moments in your life when you're all in over here. My question to you is you went through this really traumatic time for you and you really were noticing that you were on autopilot. How did you really practically actually get out of that? I mean, I, I know that you were sort of doing this studying on the side, but like what were the realities to what made that process easier for you to get through? One of the things that you begin to notice as you start to train yourself in becoming more present, which is what this training of the mind begins to do. So you begin to notice how often you're really not here. Your body's in that conference room, but your mind isn't. But more importantly, you learn how to redirect your attention so that your mind and your body can actually be in the same place. You also start to realize that there is no such thing as multitasking, that we know from neuroscience now that we're not capable of doing it and that in fact, when we do it, the productivity loss, as it's been researched now, is, is in excess of 30%. 
So when you start to recognize these kinds of aha moments about how you are spending your day and you begin to make some conscious choices about how you're going to meet that part of your day or that moment or that conversation, it's amazing how much space begins to open up in your day. That's incredible. And I think that that's just a completely different paradigm shift than creating a to-do list and like, oh my gosh, I have all these things to do and I'm going to try to respond to these emails while I'm listening to my voicemail. <laughs> and Hi. while I'm also kind of emotionally unstable in this particular moment because I'm angry <laughs> at whatever fight I just had at home. That's right. And when I start, the first thing that I usually tell groups of leaders when I'm teaching mindful leadership is the number one responsibility of a leader is to really know yourself. So if you're having that emotional mess moment or your mind is really spinning because you're just had a fight with your kid and now you're in your nine o'clock meeting and you're really not there, at least noticing that the mind is really spinning. I've got this tightness in my chest because that argument really set me off. Is there a way for me to now use my practice for a few seconds. That's the other amazing part people don't realize. In order for you to become centered again, for your mind to regain its stability, it's often only a matter of a few moments. And they could be moments that you are practicing as you're walking to the meeting room, or moments that you're just sitting at your desk, close your computer screen and feel your feet on the ground. And when your mind spins off, redirect it. That's the training. The redirection is actually the practice of meditation. It's not about sitting on a cushion. It's not about deep breathing or all these other misconceptions. It's about beginning to notice. Notice when the mind drifts away and redirect it. So you're starting to build a quote-unquote muscle of attention, of focus. That's one of the first parts of mindful leadership training. I think that's so fascinating. Janice, I used to participate in a meditation group every Mondays, I remember it was. And I did this for about a year and a half, I think it was. And it was one of the most challenging, frustrating, and amazingly gratifying things I've ever participated in. <laughs> and it's exactly, I can't, you described it perfectly. Yes, we were sitting there, eyes closed. It was guided meditation with a group of about five, six women. But it was also not even just about that physicality. It was really about the, okay, my mind's going in a thousand different directions, even though it's quiet. And like, it's this constant raining in, constant raining in. And I love, we're going to get into really a lot more about your teachings, but I love the fact that you're really combining this with business because I think historically those two things have not mixed. And so what I'm hearing you talk about is this idea that the more mindful I am, the more present I am and practice these very meditative practices, you know, the more effective and happy really that I will be in the business. So can you talk a little bit about, you basically just said, okay, I started talking a lot more about my experience and then recruited my first handful of folks to actually do this. What happened then? Did you actually create this program? I mean, were you was it sort of like you actually manually creating a program that now people can participate in? What was that process like? Right. Okay. So this first group of 13, and it happened to be 13 officers and directors who were women at General Mills. So not surprisingly to any of us or any of your listeners, the women were the people who were the first to step off the cliff because again, back then, unlike today, no one knew what mindfulness was. 
I was talking to them about my personal experience and described to them the difference it made. And I was surprised by how many of them said, yeah, we've seen that in you. We've noticed that in those crazy meetings when everybody else is crazy. And, and you're that calm, clear voice, or you're that one who sees the insight. Now, I had no idea anybody was seeing any difference in what I was doing. But because they had, that made them receptive to, all right, yeah, let me learn about this thing. So they went away. We actually, our first training was four days. So this was not a two-hour workshop. This no was kidding. four days. Wow. And it was very much this curriculum is really more than just teaching meditation. It is teaching mindful leadership. So we do leadership reflections on things like principles and inspiration and leading by inspiration and not expectations. And we also do mindful communications and calendars and meetings. So it's very much about how do you lead with excellence? And when they came back, people were all like, well, what was that thing you did with Janice? Where'd you guys go? You know, four days out of the, what the heck? Where were you? It's a big mystery. <laughs> it's a big mystery. And they came back and started saying, we can't really describe exactly what it was, but you have to go. So as with anything that touches great leaders, and my colleagues at General Mills were exceptionally wonderful, smart, good-hearted people, and I knew that when great leaders are touched by something, they want others to be touched by it. And so that's exactly what happened. Leaders told leaders. And the other thing that I knew to be true from great leaders is when they're touched by it, they want the people they lead to be touched by it. So it was only two weeks later, two weeks after we returned, that I had one of those VPs sitting in my office and saying, I want my entire division trained in mindful leadership, but I can't send them all away for four days. So <laughs> what else do you have? And so I developed a seven-week curriculum that we teach both online for people who are scattered around the country, but we also had a version of it that we could teach in the workplace if there was a, a group intact. And it was over seven weeks teaching mindful leadership to employees at every level in the organization. Wow. So obviously you had great success doing that. What was the impetus for you then leaving General Mills and starting this like full time on your own? 2006 is when it started at General Mills. In 2008, we began to open those four day retreats, which are called cultivating leadership presence through mindfulness, opening them up to other companies, other leaders in all areas of society, nonprofit leaders, et cetera. And from that, that same viral spread started to go. And the demand, by the time it came to about 2010, the demand for me teaching outside of General Mills was enormous. And it was as if I had two full-time jobs. And I began to feel that autopilot sense again that I had from the Pillsbury days and knew I had to make a choice. And the choice very honestly, as much as I loved the work that I did at General Mills, I loved being a VP there and the kind of work I was doing. The choice was easy because this work touches leaders and it is my belief and I've seen it happen that the way to get to many of the problems that we have in our organizations and in our communities is to help leaders be their best selves and help them find what I call the win-win-win 
the solution that's not only good for the organization, it's good for the employees, and it's good for the community. That's what's available when we allow leaders to use all of their capacity and we teach them how to cultivate some space, which is how my book got named, Finding the Space to Lead. When I was teaching at General Mills, General Mills simply was letting me develop this and teach this on their time. So I was teaching General Mills employees on General Mills time, in addition to my other full-time jobs. So they were fine with it as long as I was doing all my other work and I could do this additional work on top of it. Um, and remember, this was never a General Mills program. This was a program that was leaders bringing it in themselves. So at General Mills initially, leaders have development budgets they have a certain amount of money that senior leaders can spend on things that help them develop as leaders. And so it was individuals who were making the choice to spend their, first their own development money and then to spend some of their budget to have this brought to either sending people away on retreats or ha having the course brought in and paying for any additional costs of materials or CDs, things like that. Well, that's what I was wondering. I mean, if you were the one creating this program, right? I mean, you took all of your knowledge and all the things that you had educated yourself about and basically created this whole program. Was there any sort of conflict in taking that program away or, or, or did General Mills like claim it at all? Because technically you were making it, you know, under their dollar basically, or were they fine with saying, hey, you're the one who developed this, go take it? Yeah, they were fine. And and I was actually working with the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness. I had been on the advisory board there for many years. And the very first retreats I taught with the executive director of the Center for Mindfulness. So we did it together. We co-developed the very first mindful leadership. So it was the University of Massachusetts that when we moved it outside, it was under the UMass umbrella. So the Center for Mindfulness was offering it and registering people and all those costs were being picked up by the University of Massachusetts. So there wasn't a conflict Then I would just go teach with them. But I do that on my vacation time. So one of the things that is very interesting to me is that when you kind of created the company, you decided to make it a nonprofit organization. I want to know why you decided to do that and some of the pros and cons that you had or maybe the experience that you had in setting it up as a nonprofit. The work of mindful leadership to me is about a work of service. And so it didn't feel as though it belonged in a for-profit with shareholders and worrying about all of that. And instead, it felt as though the nonprofit framework for this work was just much more aligned with the kind of work it is. So this is really work that is inviting people to use and discover their own wisdom, their own heartfulness, allowing them to rediscover their principles and ethics. And it all felt to me as though it did not belong in an organization that was looking to make profits and make shareholders happy. So the choice to put it in a nonprofit was really about the substance of the work and how I felt about my relationship to that work. It also allowed us, from a business perspective, it allows us to make sure that our work is accessible to people who do not have funding to come on mindful leadership trainings. And so as a nonprofit, we have already been able to find people who believe in the curriculum that we have and in, the, in our mission 
and are willing to, for example, fund a retreat that I just did for exclusively for nonprofit leaders. I've done others for uh, nonprofit healthcare leaders. We have been approached by groups like Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and you know groups that otherwise couldn't afford to come on retreat or send their leaders on retreats. And this way, as a nonprofit, we can get funding for that. Now, I want to talk about the fact that you started this, you kind of made that jump official in 2011. As of the time of this recording, we are in mid-2014. And since then, you have more than 26 projects really going on around the world, which is an amazing growth. You started with two people on your team. You now have 10 people on your team. So this is a full-on organization that is really fulfilling so many things. Can you walk us through exactly what your business model is? I think we have a general idea, but what are the pockets of revenue that are fulfilling your budget? What types of services are you offering? Because we're a nonprofit, what we're looking to do is cover our costs. And that's all we're looking to do. And so that's the basic nonprofit model. We offer retreats, workshops, and online courses and live courses. So, so our services are pretty broad. Some of them are exclusive to organizations. I would say that actually is becoming the majority of our offerings. So there are groups or teams or companies or divisions within a company who write to us and say, we know about your work or, or I've just read your book and they want to know if we would customize training for them, either as part of a larger program they're having, convention, conference, retreats for their strategic teams, or as a standalone retreat. So we customize work. And then the other part are open retreats and courses that we we hold every year because we also recognize that not every organization is ready for mindful leadership. And so, and yet within those organizations, there are, are individuals who are ready, who want this. And so we hold open offerings, open services, so that individuals from organizations can come on retreat for their own purposes. And very often those people become champions within their organization to say, hey, I've been on this now, and let me tell you why I think it fits with with our company goals. And how exactly are you getting in front of potential associations and organizations that would participate in your training? Well, Word of mouth is undoubtedly our number one. Uh, So virtual spread of what we offer. And then there have been a number of really wonderful platforms that have been made available to us, the Huffington Post being one of them. Early on, Ariana Huffington actually was one of the first time I met Ariana was at the World Economic Forum when I was teaching mindful leadership there in 2013. And from that workshop. She has been just a wonderful supporter of the Institute and of the work that we do here. And so I write for the Huffington Post and have been on HuffPost Live. And so that's that's an example of it, of some of the press we've gotten. The Financial Times did a cover story on my work, and that certainly began, began the global understanding of the work that we do. And then the book, Finding the Space to Lead, which was just released in January, which was released as a practical guide, another way for people to get a taste of this. How do I do this? And so 
along with the book, there are free downloads online that your listeners can take a look at and try for themselves right now, findingthespacetolead.com. And the purpose of that book is really to put it in someone's hands who's not ready to go on a retreat yet, but I want to get a taste for this. What is this about? What is mindful leadership? And that has been a powerful calling card. It's being translated into Korean and German and all around the world now. Wow. What was your experience like actually writing the book? Like, was this something that you wrote or did you hire a ghostwriter to kind of help you with that process? Did you get it traditionally published? What was your experience actually writing that book and getting it to market? It was another example of stepping off the cliff, you know, leaving General <laughs> Mills and leaving the practice of law and starting a nonprofit and now writing a book that was an, it felt very much like another step off the cliff. So I had no idea what to expect. I did know that I did not want a ghostwriter. So everything written in that book is mine. And if I if the book was going to be a good book, it was going to be a good book because it was my words. And so no ghostwriter. And the meditations are mine, and the even the audible.com version I recorded. So, and then I used Bloomsbury, uh, so I didn't want to go the non-traditional route with the publication of the book either. And I went with an international publisher known for publishing business books. And I have to say, Katie, that one of the most exciting moments for me was I, I wanted this book to be in a place that no other mindfulness book had been, and that was in the category of Barnes & Noble called Leadership. And I didn't want it in psychology or theology or any of wellness or any of that. I wanted it in leadership because I, I so strongly believe that's what this curriculum is about. And so one of my most exciting moments was the day it was released, walking into Barnes and Noble and right under the green sign that says leadership, there was finding the space to lead. That's great. And, uh, that was very fun because we had no idea if it would happen. What have you seen your students come out of this program with? What new skills do they have and how is it truly affecting their businesses? When we begin this training, one of the first things we start to uncover or discover are the ways in which we have filters on what we see. And so we're in such a, a hurry. We are rushing about so much that both in our personal lives and in our businesses, we begin to see what we expected to see or hear what we expected to hear or see what we wanted to see or what we hoped we would see. And very often it blinds us to what is actually here to be seen, whether that's in our marketplace, in our team, in our relationships, in our any, any aspect of our lives. So being able to see with greater clarity is certainly one of the things that I, I watch happen in retreats and in courses and people have these aha moments about their lives. And so I would say that that cultivation of clarity shows up very quickly. The other thing that shows up is they begin to learn that even in the midst of the chaos, I can bring more of my wisdom into a moment of a difficult conversation or a difficult meeting if I can bring myself into the present, as opposed to the mind that always wants to be into the future, planning, 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 or into the past where we don't let go of something like ever. You know, yeah. we, we replay that conversation, we replay that meeting, and it just exhausts us. 
So when we start to learn that we can put those parts of our mind down, that thinking, that ruminating, that we can actually notice it, we're not pushing it away, but we can let it be for now and bring our attention to this conversation, it really starts to make a difference and people notice it very quickly in the workplace and in home. I'm just imagining exactly what that feels like. I've had moments like that. By no means am I a master at it, but I there are very clear memories that I have of flying off the handle in a moment or not being present in a moment when sort of in that leadership business role and when I actually kind of do am very sort of present and peaceful. And they're very, very different feelings. Right. Use of the word feeling is actually right because, and so insightful, because when someone is looking right at you and they're there to have a conversation with you, and even if they're doing the head nodding thing, if they're not present, you can feel it. Yeah. And if they are, you can feel it. The same is true for us. When we're not fully present for a conversation with our friend, our child, our spouse, significant other, they feel it. And the same with our colleagues. If we're not here because our mind is, yeah, I'm physically here, but I'm really thinking about the next meeting, it's felt. And not only is it disrespectful, but it's disconnecting and it's why people start to feel disengaged. Janice, what are some of the ways that you yourself has have grown and evolved as a mindful leader throughout just this past couple of years of running this organization? Uh, that's a good question. One of the pieces that my practice has really helped me with, and it's an up and down process, so I've been learning as I go, but part of it is noticing the ability to let go and to trust that yep, we're going to let go of that. We're not going to try and anticipate every possibility or in any way try to control things. But we're going to instead prepare ourselves to be flexible to meet what is emerging because the marketplace that I'm working in didn't exist and now all of a sudden is burgeoning. And so with that comes all the trials of what happens in a marketplace like that. You know, there are people out there who are doing great work and there are people out there calling themselves teachers of mindfulness or mindful leadership coaches who don't have a clue what they're talking about. And so there's worries that come along with that of maintaining the integrity of the work that's being done. Where do you see your organization going? Like, what do you see in the future for your organization? What are your big hopes and your big goals for this company? Well, I've been really fortunate to have a team of wonderful people along with me on this ride. And I would expect that the number of instructors that I have been training, because I personally train every instructor who teaches for the Institute, and it's a process that takes time. And so I invest a great deal into every instructor's development. And I do that to, again, maintain the integrity of, of what we teach here at the Institute. I expect that the number of instructors will need to increase, but I'm committed to doing it slowly. So if that means that organizations have to wait a little bit as things go forward, that may happen, but hopefully not. So I expect we'll continue to grow slowly and not in a way that's out of control just to meet the burgeoning marketplace, but in a way that's respectful of the work that we do. Can you tell everyone where they can go to to get more information about your programs? Sure, I'd love to. So the website for the Institute is 
instituteformindfulleadership.org, ORG. So remember, it's a nonprofit ORG. And then if you'd like to just try some meditations and reflections, as I mentioned, they're free on the book website, findingthespacetolead.com. And I'd invite you to go to findingthespacetolead.com and try one. They take 10 minutes. They're very quick and see what you think. Well, I'm definitely going and downloading some of those. <laughs> I really want to thank you for the work that you're bringing out there. And, and I just really want to sincerely thank you for sharing your journey with us that just gave so much insight as to how you can truly build something like this. So Janice, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Katie. It's been really fun going through this with you. And I think the work you do bringing this to women is, is terrific, bringing all these topics to women business leaders. for this interview as well as a direct link to Janice's website and her book that you can get on Audible is at bizwomenrock.com forward slash 74. I just really love this entire topic that Janice and I spoke about today. I love the idea of being totally present and more importantly when it comes to your business and let's be honest just about everything in your life being able to be totally clear and honest with what is truly in front of you so that you can deal with it very honestly. Totally love that. So in celebration of mindful leadership and the topic that Janice brought to light for us today, I'm going to challenge you to take note of how you are present throughout the day. I know it got me thinking about, oh my gosh, I, I, am I really totally present all the time? And am I trying to multitask and I'm not being effective at it? Um, I, I think, you know, we can all really identify with that. But my challenge to you is for the rest of the day today, just take note on when you are present and recognize when you are not. I think just recognizing that would be incredibly empowering. So I hope you enjoyed yourself today and I'll see you on the next episode.